Welcome to Conversation Beneath the Trees, a podcast bringing together scientists, farmers and innovators from all around Ireland to share their ideas and experiences farming with trees. I'm your host, Catherine Cleary. I work with trees in urban areas as part of social enterprise Pocket Forests. I love what trees can bring to our land and our lives and I'm fascinated by the many benefits they offer to farming and food production. This podcast has been produced by the Irish Agroforestry Forum in association with GrowIn. It's funded by the Woodland Support Scheme provided by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. Welcome to episode three of Conversation Beneath the Trees. In this episode, we'll explore what's next for agroforestry and the development of new sustainable projects. So here we are. Uh, welcome to Conversation Beneath the Trees. And the people joining me for the conversation beneath our trees today are two very interesting people who are getting deeper and deeper into trees as their lives go on. I think Imogen Rabone from Trees on the Land and Clive Bright, who's a Sligo beef farmer. Imogen, where did you start on your tree journey? I hate that word journey, but I'm, I've, got, I've said it now. <laughs> I started about, it must be sort of 10 or 12, even probably longer years ago now I'd been doing a lot of other projects came out from college I ran a few businesses I always been sort of embedded in the countryside and and, and trees and farming and, and things like that it's always been something that was kind of very important to me but I wasn't working in, in that area and the longer I went on doing other things the, the clearer it became that I needed to be doing something in and around greenery and trees it was it was just before these sort of climate questions and things like that came up before they were sort of common conversation but I, I felt that trees were a real key part of something that needed to be done and and in Ireland I was quite I, I'm English I, I grew up in a, in a part of England that has got a lot of trees I'm very lucky um, and I, I, ca- I kept noticing how few trees there were and, and, and the abundance of Sitka spruce and not much else and, and I suppose that inspired the idea that I, I've always felt that a farm isn't a farm without trees and a field isn't a field without a hedge around it and a few trees in it and I suppose for good or bad I took that perspective to Ireland and that started me on my way. And you studied here before you began your venture? I did, yes. I've been to do my degree. I studied philosophy um, in Trinity and I suppose that's about as far away as you can get from what I'm doing now. But I guess it doesn't exclude going on an adventure with trees. It, it, it's quite a broad subject. But yeah, that kept me out of trouble for a few years in Dublin and then I, and then I stayed, you know, was in Ireland perhaps 15 years or thereabouts. Mm. And what was that longing? I mean, how did it express itself? Did you find yourself at a desk job thinking, I really, I really want to be working with trees or, and do you know where that came from? Was it, was it from childhood? I never had a desk job. Um, I was, I was working as a photographer actually for a long time and, and running two businesses. And, and, and I've always done a lot of work with horses over the years. And and so I guess they kind of diverged. The photography became less and, and the work with horses became more. So actually I found myself out and about in the countryside more than I had been um, living and working in Dublin and it, it just sort of pulled me in there there wasn't really much of a battle I realized Jesus what am I doing in Dublin um I love Dublin but um it wasn't really there was no battle I just kind of allowed myself to kind of played, played out into the into the country I got back to, to really where I felt most comfortable where my my roots are if you like I, I felt more comfortable out and about dealing with the project was very much founded working with farmers. We we were told that we or I was told constantly, ah, if we're trying to give trees to farmers, they won't have it. And even the very first few steps we, we took, it was clear that lots of farmers did in fact want some trees. And so and so I kind of just ended up going off down that road. There was no sort of in a battle. I I willing I went willingly up the garden path, I suppose. <laughs> up the forest path as as it is. Um Clive, where are trees in your thinking and feelings? What's your been your path to here? On our farm, kind of historically, there was very little tree cover and, and quite sparse of hedges as well. There's a few very deliberate efforts to plant trees uh, by my grandfather. But apart from that, I think my love of trees was kind of self-manifested, probably motivated by ecological interests initially, but... Uh, Upon kind of discovering agroforestry and learning more about the benefits of trees, uh, I, I, I kind of started to see them as, as a solution for a lot of the issues on the farm. The, the main goal 
of a farmer if you strip away all the cultural and traditional things that go along with farming uh, it, like our, our main goal is to is to harness the sun's energy uh, and uh, grow grow green leaves or use green leaves to do that and trees allow another level of that on pasture so it kind of multiplies the power of of every acre i suppose and um as i started exploring agroforestry further then uh, came across the research from Loch Gall, Jim McAdams' work, and uh, in the UK and Europe, and um, the the kind of standout part of that that kind of st- personal study, I suppose, was was the benefit trees could have for the welfare of animals, and and that became kind of a big focus of mine, and ju- just kind of the, the shelter and shade that. Um, can affect animals in such a positive way. If, uh, you just observe animals in the landscape; uh, they're often seeking shelter and shade, and it, it it's it's very much to that they they thermally regulate themselves uh, rather than expending energy through the food they eat. If they have shelter and shade, they can be much more kind of energy efficient within their bodies, and it, it's it's kind of a it's a real. Uh, welfare thing really but it also adds to productivity in that sense so by increasing uh, the kind of the photosynthetic power of every acre and increasing the welfare of the animals it all adds to the stability and productivity of the farm and I suppose uh, the, the whole narrative of planting trees or making ecological steps in the farm is often seen as this uh, altruistic effort um, like it's kind of like you're sacrificing a piece of land to plant a tree, whereas I've started to see it much more uh, as you're actually enhancing the wildlife or the kind of the both the wildlife and the livestock habitat on the farm. And it is going back to what Imogen was saying that, you know, a field isn't a field without a hedgerow and uh, uh, some trees in it. But I suppose our image of a field is that I, I don't know if you had these as kids, but the fuzzy felt where you just had this green base and then you put animals onto it. We have a lot of fuzzy felt farms where the incentives and the system has incentivized farmers to remove hedgerows and to make large pastures. Imogen, how did you reach those first farmers when you set up trees on the land? How did you reach out to them with with your offer of of trees? <laughs> I think you know the answer to it. Possibly, <laughs> um, the various pathways. There was there was a fair bit of word of mouth, um, which is still really important to us. Actually, we we still don't really even get as far as advertising each season because the project sort of seems to travel by word of mouth. Uh-huh. Um, so there was there was an element of that, and we did have did all the usual things. There was press releases and stuff went out. The sort of special moments, I think, was I can't remember the name of the man. It, it went out in the Farmers Journal that sort of a little pocket article that said "free trees for farms" ring this number, and that was my my phone number. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've never quite recovered since from that. I think we took eight thousand calls in a number of you know, not very many weeks, and. Yeah, I remember having an interesting conversation with the, the Vodafone guy because my bill obviously went sort of off the scale of I got this horrific bill and I returned. I was frantically trying to return calls and keep up keep up with everyone. And they actually gave me the figures. They said, well, with all respect, you know, we're not surprised your bill's got a bit crazy because you've had received. Then they gave me the number. It was 8,000, only 722 calls incoming wow. in the last three weeks. So that, I think, gave it possibly the kick. Yeah. Testament to the reach of the Farmers Journal, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, right. And, yeah. Uh, and and also, I mean, it was it was nearly disaster because, it, you know, in in another sense, we were not ready for that. <laughs> we were really not ready for that sort of mm. influx. But yeah, that was that was a kind of key turning point. It, it got us on the road, whether we liked it or not. And were were people suspicious when they rang you? Were they, you know, what's the catch here? What, you know, there's nothing for free. Um, or or were they just genuinely interested in? what you had to I mean explain maybe explain how trees on the land works yeah I mean yeah I think there was a little bit of that I, I remember taking you know there was a lot of people who knew better sort of asking the hard questions where are these trees coming from and what are you doing and, and are these all just sick as spruce and stuff who are you funded by there, there was a little bit of that there was a lot of genuine interest essentially we were offering very simple in those days we were offering packs of, of 50 trees to, to farmers and then we bolted on community groups and, and schools as well 
So, and, and kind of broadened it to, you know, these days we, we try to include absolutely anyone who, who, who would like some trees as long as the planting is, is, is appropriate and the site's suitable and then everyone is welcome. To a certain extent, there, there was a little bit of, I mean, is this a scam? And, you know, we were on our knees by the time we got to the full production and there's so many things went wrong. It was very interesting times. We, we did get some trees planted. It was a super first year and we're still here to tell the tale, but... Hmm. Um, I should think there were a few people saying this really is a scam <laughs> because they were trying to drive halfway around the county for their trees and it was chaos. In fact, Clive, I think you were on that very first year. I don't know what, you know, you could yeah. well have hilarious memories of where you actually got your tree, but somewhere by the border, I think, from a dodgy <laughs> garage. Dodgy <laughs> kind of pull up door to door in a car park somewhere. It, it was pretty, you know, and, and actually it's not for the, the few, you know, obviously, when you're dealing with huge numbers, I think we had two or three thousand people taking part that year. You you learn that you're never going to please everybody, even if you run a perfect project. So that always becomes, you know, that it certainly wasn't a perfect project, and we certainly weren't going to please anyone. But but there were some good folk who came out of the woodwork quite quickly afterwards, saying that was great. Can we do it again? Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of what you have to sort of pick yourself up dust yourself off and say right well let's improve on this and get cracking and and that's sort of where it how it develops and and you are the organization that you are today clive did you get some dodgy trees no i, I won't call them that that's <laughs> did you <laughs> they get grow. That, what that first batch of trees from imogen i did when it began as as a million trees in one day um and i've been very thankful to to happily avail of uh, small amounts of trees every year and um use them to picking up gappy hedges and lots of pockets and corners of trees across the farm. But in in recent years, I've started to form more of a whole farm plan and been more confident to plant larger areas. And uh, they're all building towards kind of more extensive tree systems across the farm. So um, trees on the land have been a huge, a, a huge uh, kind of incentive as well, because uh, once you kind of uh, get excited about trees coming you kind of commit to planting another section of the grand plan but uh, we started growing quite a few trees as well um in the in the, the veggie garden uh it's becoming a small little tree nursery oh i love it it's a lot less work than a veggie garden actually a tree nursery really it's incredible how many trees you can fit in a in a garden bed um like maybe 500 trees in the space where you could only grow 40 carrots and the value of those trees is 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 huge compared to the carrots of course um so yeah it's quite exciting to grow grow a few trees carrots are Um, really really hard to grow as well from a from a failed carrot uh, grower yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um and imogen that I mean, what your model is very different to, I suppose, what farmers would be thinking of as, you know, mainstream agroforestry, which is obviously working with a forester. Um, does I think part of the appeal of your project is that the farmer gets to do this or the landowner gets to do this themselves. They don't have to bring in a forester to establish some. And, and it's not, you know, it's not a large amount of land being lost to trees which is a a recurring kind of idea that you know if you put your farm in or a part of your farm in forestry you lose that land to trees was your idea always to just almost landscape farms with trees rather than you know create a a forestry section on a farm we've never been an afforestation project as such forestry as a word as as a concept doesn't really has hasn't ever you know we've never really been in the game of, of planting woodlands or forests and anything you know most vast majority of what we do is is very small groves of trees or pockets of trees if you like um mm-hmm. hedgerows shelter belts things that almost everything you think of that that isn't forestry mm-hmm. um so in that sense we leave the forestry to, to the, the big boys and the grants and, and all of that we do have you know forester watching very closely over it. You know, everything is very carefully watched on from the inside by both foresters and ecologists actually kind of carefully watching and screening everything but ordinarily you know your average application is is 25 or 50 or 100 trees so that you know we're, again we're about as far away from forestry as you can go as the applications come into us we kind of have various cutoffs so a lot of applications as i say at 25 or 50 trees and and things especially you know things going to schools and community groups that are very small numbers of trees going somewhere very clear um and 
with our farmers, we, we, we sort of do a lot of reading between the lines, really, where it's clear cut and we have an application from a pharmacy that, that says, I, I've got 80 metres of hedgerow that I'm looking to, to plant as new or to put in. My father pulled them out, so I want to put it back in. Or a lot of people might have a gappy hedgerow that they want to fill in. So often an application is very clear cut. It's quite clear exactly what they want to do. They know what they want to do. And, and we don't see any reason to sort of worry too much or get too involved. And then often we have other farms that come to us where we can see that there's a bit more ambition in there, that there's a, a will that, you know, I had one the other day where a farmer had done this beautiful map of his farm and he put little triangle corners into nearly every field mm-hmm. and wanted to put a copse of, I think it was something, it was a funny number, like 37 trees mm-hmm. in the corner of each field. And it was it was very detailed and, and there were no, no particular problems looking at the application but we got and then we wanted to, to do you know hedgerow filling in and, and vast lines of hedgerows everywhere so we watch very carefully and we pick out as as we go any any farms that look like there's more scope more ambition more more will mm-hmm. to to go a bit further into more detail then we engage and you know we sort of get more involved and that's when we send out foresters and ecologists and we just have to look and mm-hmm. we work then on full farm plans or for farms that either want it or, or need it. Sometimes if someone's doing something perhaps a little bit too ambitious that we think, golly, perhaps we need to have a look and, and, and help out here. Goes sort of hand in hand with, I suppose, the opposite end of things, which is back to the idea that perhaps farmers don't want trees or, or they're not familiar with, with a landscape farming with trees. And, and there are so many farms in Ireland and indeed, you know, the whole of the, the islands here, the British Isles and, and parts of Europe where the previous generations have, have taken out, you know, huge numbers of trees, pedros. So mm-hmm. what we have found quite a lot, it, we have a lot of father and son or grandfather and grandson or uncle and nephew and niece, you know, it's not, it's not all men. A lot of teams like that where there's a will to put trees back in, but a little bit of nervousness to, to go you know a little bit of um, you know discomfort or feeling a bit unsure but what we've often found is that if you give a bag of trees to a farm they the passion seems to be that quite often that, that they come back year after year and, and and actually if you put 50 trees on your farm every year for 10 or 20 years or you put 100 trees that can make quite a serious difference to the overall structure you know you really can make it it doesn't have to be thousands of trees you know small bits and and that's I suppose that's the social side of it is that allowing people to get their own momentum and, and figure out their own way of doing things and if they go and put their 50 trees in that corner over there then then that's that and that that's okay you know we don't have to chase them to do more or do it differently there's the element of you know let, let the farmer lead and often they know their land far better than we can in a quick walk and a talk you know there, there's often that that element I suppose it, you know, we, we've got a huge big massive oak tree out in the middle of one of our fields and it's one tree there's no other trees around it it's all on its own it's got a spread of something insane as I measured it last year it's something like a 40 meter canopy spread from one side to the other that is enormous you can get 200 sheep under that tree on a hot day you know, the the value of that one tree, as Clive was saying, you know, you pop some trees in a field and the animal, you know, straight away your livestock's gone off to seek out the, the, the shelter. So I think we get knocking on big numbers and the big numbers, but actually if you had that one tree and like I say, in a field, field and out a tree, that, that one tree is doing the work of perhaps a thousand trees elsewhere. Mm. Um, a veteran tree. Explain the map behind you. It's a map of Ireland, which looks like there's a massive grey rain cloud over most of it with some streaks of orange rust through it. Is it a soil map? Is it a temperature? No, I, yeah, it's actually totally irrelevant. Well, not, not really. It's a geological bedrock map. Ah. So it informs some, it, it does follow, you know, obviously the bedrock informs a lot of the soils on top, uh-huh. um, but it doesn't actually follow the soil maps or anything. It's okay. it's really just a thing of beauty. My cousin gave it to me years ago and I did lugged it around with me for many years. It looks like a, a piece of stone itself. That leads yeah. me beautifully <laughs> to my favourite subject, Clive, soil. I mean, I'm I'm remembering my visit to your farm at, uh, outside Ballymote in Sligo. I think it was one of the wettest days of the summer of 
2021 and uh, we got thoroughly drenched um but your ground was still walkable and you know that you were saying has a lot to do with what you've been doing with trees yeah i always like that um i suppose it's a, a theory really about the cage of fields in in mayo uh, the cage of fields are this like they're they they're believed to be the oldest uh uh, farming archaeological site uh, possibly in Europe uh, uh, kind of a closed field system where they found all these stone walls beneath the bog and um, it's it's a kind of a fascinating thought experiment to figure out what happened because um, there, there's a whole extensive field network that's over 4,000 years ago and it was at some stage abandoned and bog grew over it uh, and from pollen records uh, in the soil and everything else beforehand, they've kind of traced it back that the the whole area was a Scots pine forest initially, and those early farmers came in, dropped all those trees, and they farmed it for about two hundred years before it was abandoned, or they believe it was abandoned, and then the bog encroached and grew over it. Um, and uh, yeah, like two hundred years is quite a short period of time really and but like that uh, my theory is that well it's not only my theory but the theory i i would agree with is that that land kind of needed those trees Uh, you know it was um with the kind of geological lottery of of the soil there it was possibly quite a heavy soil and the trees were a crucial part in the kind of ecosystem of that soil functioning and um it needed that that kind of power of those roots to structure the soil and keep it structured so after they cleared those and started farming it as a as a pasture uh um kind of landscape and like obviously it was the you can't blame chemicals you can't blame heavy machinery it was all very low input kind of um farming and you know the soil still broke down there and wasn't able was was wasn't good enough and was worth you know just kind of abandoning um after putting all the work into creating it um so like that would kind of bolster the idea that there's lots of lots of landscapes and lots of soil types that kind of require trees to to be productive in the long term and i certainly feel that on my lower lying fields that they they almost need trees to be functional and product productive and um yeah that kind of cage of fields thing really emphasis kind of just solidifies that whole idea for me that by reintroducing trees we're kind of um bringing that landscape closer to what it wants to be it's it's its natural kind of state and by getting closer to that natural state and that natural ecology of what suits that soil then we can farm more in harmony with it soil structure and infiltration is definitely aided by trees in a big way and i think it really works well together with our grazing management um we use uh holistic planned grazing as part of kind of holistic management framework which aims to allow pasture to fully recover in between each grazing event. And um, it goes a long way to building soil function um, and soil structure in general across across the broad acre. But in, in the more marginal areas and in places that have been damaged by compaction and stuff in the past, trees certainly add extra muscle and uh, can open up soils with those uh, deep penetrating roots and um, you know add a layer of of fungal biology to the soil and really restructure soil where it's been damaged in the past or where the the water cycle is dysfunctional and uh, I found it actually particularly um, useful in areas where we have heavy infestation of rushes and uh, it's a it's a it's a big issue for uh, lots of farmers on on more marginal areas and uh and especially on organic farms who 
who uh, don't have the tool of the herbicides or, or uh, things like that to manage rushes, where planting trees kind of solved the root cause of, of compaction and uh, waterlogged land uh, where their roots uh, penetrate deeply, they they kind of um, alleviate all those infiltration problems. They raise pH, and um, they they just kind of restructure and balance soil out again. And they they basically eradicate rushes completely, where you have a completely dysfunctional soil without trees, and then you have this kind of a productive woodland pasture with with trees and uh yeah i'm i'm looking forward to a future landscape where a lot of those marginal areas are kind of repaired or that water cycle is repaired and it's just um it's operating as a as a really nice uh, and productive system i remember imogen saying one time that um one of her kind of goals was was that every farmer would carry a silky saw, and I I, I want to be one of those farmers. I just uh, I I already do carry a silky saw at times of the year, and um, where a silky saw is like a it's a pruning saw, and where I I use it to shape trees and you know cut out trees sometimes and um, just just kind of manage the landscape in a very passive way, uh, and. I think another thing about silvopasture that's often, or even trees in general on farms, they're often seen as this uh, permanent feature where you've planted a tree and you're stuck with it. Uh, whereas like I really see silvopasture as quite a dynamic landscape that can change and you're thinning out trees to allow more light in to the pasture and uh, maybe over plant areas to to so that the roots of those trees and the community of those trees repair soil in areas and then you start to thin them out quite young and so you get to shape the landscape all the time and uh yeah so i'm, I'm looking forward to be a full-time silky carrying saw farmer um you're doing it one yeah. branch at a time as opposed to going out yeah house leather yeah let's take a break with that image of Clive and his pruning saw managing his trees next half of this episode we'll hear Imogen talk about the joy of putting young trees on a farm and how farmers could save the world. So I think I ended up calling you the dream um, Clive. <laughs> this was the dream Imogen that that farmers would just become more I suppose comfortable around trees and enjoy them. Is part of the joy of your project that they plant them at a very young stage so is that something that you get any feedback from you know that, that these aren't sort of semi-mature trees they're you know two-year-old whips that they get to see grow quite quickly and and in a very satisfying way. I'm a really strong believer in using young 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 trees you know as long as they've got good roots and hopefully good sort of good genes good provenance they do work you know they take off so much more strongly and better generally the bigger tree and we do quite often have races with trees sort of setting different different ages against each other and they do seem to really come good equally we get maybe odd phone call when someone receives their first pack of trees saying you know what am i supposed to do with these stupid twigs in a bag <laughs> so there's a little bit of education around the the idea that those are, are absolutely viable trees sort of shut up and plant them without being quite so rude <laughs> but actually it is astonishing how quick you can get the establishment from um that kind of young young yeah, forestry of, stock it, it's one of my bugbears with urban trees they always seem especially in the part of the city that i live they always say oh we can't plant very young trees you know we're going to bring in these semi-mature trees which you know you can see are visibly suffering from having been taken out of the nursery where they were for 10 years or whatever the time frame was and and being stuck into a, a city location um it's a tough start for a tree whereas your you know your trees are starting as almost as young as they can you know you do, and you see sometimes with landscaping jobs, do you see those bigger trees brought in alongside smaller trees? Say, say there's, you know, a hedgerow planted or, or sort of a bank planted up quite densely, and then they push in a few of the bigger trees to, to sort of make the point quite often after five years, you know, they, those bigger trees are still uh, struggling and, and younger trees have come up and, and gone away. Mm. 
brilliant. And it's a very specialist job moving big trees. And, and most of us aren't cut out for, you know, it's just, it's, it's such a specialist job to get. I remember when they put those new trees into O'Connell Street. Um, when would that be? When they redid all of O'Connell mm-hmm. Street in Dublin. About a decade ago or so, yeah. Actually, they've done really well. Like, they were obviously a specialist job and they've come, but there was a sort of bit of touch and go for a few seasons. And I watched them thinking, well, they won't, they won't make mm-hmm. Um But yeah, I think starting them young, and then you have this sort of the endless conundrum, which I and I spent quite a lot of time talking about over the while, and, and we talk about it a lot in the forum, is how how do you guard your trees and how do you give them you got and when I say guard, I mean in in many cases the best guard you can do is not to guard them at all. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of situations where it's you know the, the guards do more harm than good. But certainly with plastic covers that would be around trees to protect them as they're from the in that young stage. Yeah, and, and there's many different kinds. So I think we tend to think of those plastic tubes and there's literal spirals that the rabbit spirals and then there's and everything up to this more, you know, there's a lot coming through in the agroforestry wood pasture, silver pasture type mob that we may even end up talking about, you know, the sort of spiky cactus guards and different versions it's the second i I, I have heard the word spiky cactus guards sorry i'm I'm a big i'm fascinated by tree guards and i I spent a lot of time kind of working on trying to trying to figure i mean at the moment we've got some the the complete overkills we have a little tiny whips that were maybe you know 60 centimeters or 70 centimeters the, the width of a pencil that went in and they, as per my my belief that really if you can avoid staking them or tying them or doing anything like that, so they're little naked trees like this, mm-hmm. and they're in guards that are perhaps a meter a meter twenty across square. Wow. Uh, they're class class chestnut, and they are eight foot tall, and they they look like medieval fortresses that are sort of fanned out, and they're absolutely impenetrable. You know, nothing can get in there. Yeah. Um, and it, it looks. Them. They actually they do have a grazing gap underneath so that the the the, the animals can put it a nose just under the edge and just keep some of the grass down without reaching the stem of the tree, which I'm a big fan of leaving grazing gaps. But the, the sort of irony of this huge massive that my my husband works with 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 plathwood, so it's very easy for him to knock them up. They didn't cost us the bob that they would cost if you went and commissioned them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are sort of ridiculous as tiny little tree growing in the most enormous garage. But okay. They are growing, you know, the, the, the proof of the pudding will be, you know, do we get straight trees that have been unmessed with by by anything and you know, will they grow straight and will they grow tall and strong and, and we'll, we'll, we'll see, hopefully, nothing gets in, you know, a giraffe might be a problem, I suppose. <laughs> top not, not many of those around. I mean, going, it kind of goes back to your central word, Clive, which was energy, you know, the, the, the energy of these young trees is what I love to see happening, you know, when we do pocket forest projects and like that the the kids in schools look at these twigs and I tell them every time these will have leaves on them and they might be you know they might double in size in their first growing season and and they all look at me and say this woman is crazy but it is that energy that is so exciting about working with these species they're so good at you know colonizing spaces and and making themselves um, part of your farm how much of your farm is is naturally becoming woodland Clive is that part of the model as well that you're allowing some trees to seed themselves on the farm well there there isn't that much uh, seed stock really in the landscape um like all the trees I've planted are still quite young and aren't really producing seed and what was there historically were, were just some sycamore and they, they were what my grandfather planted and um <clears throat> so no natural regeneration isn't really something I'm 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 working on. Like there there have there there are areas that I've excluded from grazing as an experiment, and nothing has grown in them. So I think I need to need to intervene um, to kind of fast forward uh, the grand plan. I suppose I have tried to focus on easy wins within the farm. Um, I I think uh, steep slopes is is one. Um, uh, it's a very advantageous place to plant trees for lots of reasons. Um, 
kind of excludes or limits, the, well, it kind of excludes the use of machinery on steep slopes where it's dangerous. So it's kind of a really good safety uh, issue there by planting trees. Nobody can drive there, so then they don't. Steeper slopes are also, they're kind of a, a place where trees do tend to naturally colonize in the landscape uh i suppose there's less browsing pressure there in 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 the wild and because uh, animals don't like standing on a slope so trees tend to get a hole there nicely and ecologically it kind of fits in because they're holding that slope uh they're holding the soil um and they they have a, a real uh, function there a niche there to fill and um it's it's a place where there's often springs as well, so trees can help alleviate wetness around those areas and um, utilize that water and keep the water cycle functioning and the soil functioning. Uh, the other area we we focused really on the land, as I kind of mentioned earlier, was low line and compacted ground, where we have um, there's an iron pan across a lot of the farm, and the trees do great work in breaking up that and. Uh, alleviating the, the 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 rushier areas and um so that's all very deliberate and planned planting as well and kind of the third w approach we've we've taken or the kind of need we've seen on the farm are on higher areas um and we've kind of planted very much or we're planning to plant more so uh on contour and try to create very uh, deliberate shelter belts and design them in such a way that they break uh, the, the flow of the wind really and um, yeah create shelter in the landscape that that's the main thing um, I've, I've often been quite surprised at how quick trees grow there's areas there we planted there's a uh, grove of trees we planted six years ago as part of the glass scheme and I had the whole herd in there the other day uh, trampling and grazing the grass underneath to kind of stimulate more pasture uh, and knock back the kind of woody understory and um, they did a fantastic job uh, but yeah there was there was nearly uh, 60 animals cows and calves and everything else and finishing animals all together in this quite small space doing that and did absolutely no damage to any of the trees at all it's just this kind of short burst of grazing and um they just did a super job and it's really surprising that when trees are especially when they're planted more densely together they grow they grow very fast and uh, they be, it becomes a very tree kind of like space quite quickly it's not you don't have to wait like 200 years to get trees that you can get the pleasure from them quite early on mm. and the advantage to you i mean the, the as you say that marginal land that has been damaged by uh, farming I suppose in one way with the iron pan and and water not being able to get down and the rushes coming in and I suppose the rushes are there trying to do a job which is to aerate the soil again or, or get the roots down into the soil um the advantage from your perspective and when I've talked to you before about this seems to be an economic one as well as a sense of rightness about this I mean you do have the sense that this is what your land wants almost that that there is uh, these elements that you're putting back in would be there if the land was making its own choices but there's also and that's all very lovely and you know ecologically sound and the biodiversity elements and the carbon and all of that but you've also had an economic benefit from how you're farming with trees yeah well it's it's all of the above really um well planned tree planting or tree systems across the landscape are are often um said to be a win-win-win-win where you know nature's winning um the livestock are winning the soil is winning the farmers pockets are winning but it's certainly like the economic factor is is certainly key to all my decision making you know it's part of holistic management i suppose you're always thinking of of all those uh things um and trying to include them all in your decision making and um trees so often just tick all those boxes quite easily uh, yeah i think i think it's a bit of a bugbear of mine and how they like ecological measures or or um things uh, schemes and department things are often sold that you know these these measures are are kind of altruistic you know that they they we're going to pay you to 
um, do this brilliant thing for nature. Uh, whereas they like it, I think it would be quite easy to reframe it very slightly going, we're going to support you to um, uh, help you increase your soil organic matter or we're going to help you increase the shelter on your farm for the wildlife. And back to the soil organic matter or the carbon sequestration uh, issue, you know, if the farmers are always going to be the first ones to benefit from having more carbon in their soil, like if their organic matter is high, their fertility is high and they'll grow more grass and they'll be more productive. So like they're always the first ones to win. Like it's brilliant for everyone. It's brilliant for the broader environment and um, kind of, uh, you know, water quality in the whole catchment area. And it's, it's brilliant for lots of things. But I think selling it as a sacrifice uh, for the greater good is is selling it short and it's it's surely an easier sell if it's for the farmer's good so i never really get that but um yeah so other thing like one of i kind of mentioned before is trees are so good at um from the welfare point of view of of uh, animals helping to thermally regulate and it may seem like a little thing, but if animals are cold, they eat like 30 to 40 percent more feed just to keep warm. And that's a huge amount of kind of cost, uh, wa wasted costs or wasted energy that they've, they you know, they've eaten loads of food just to keep warm where they should really be eating that food to grow and uh, be part of the productive system of the farm. By providing shelter and trade, you kind of just you're alleviating that cost completely and so the cattle are a lot more comfortable um and they they like even in hot weather you often find um animals huddling in under the tiniest bit of shade in the corner and when they're in there they're not eating uh and whereas if there was trees scattered across the field for example um they'd be shade kind of all over the place and they could continue to eat and shade at the same time so that's more productive than an, an animals that's willing to stand for hours uh you know just to keep cool or keep out of the hot sun uh and not eat and not be uh gaining in weight so yeah th that kind of welfare is 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 directly connected to profit and and productivity and so all these things kind of add up and the example before of of trees alleviating rushes on the the more marginal and compacted ground like the, the the cost of fixing that mechanically or the the way that that's done kind of uh, conventionally is is to get rid of the rushes uh, by draining and maybe mole plowing or um, ripping up those pastures and reseeding them. And, you know, this huge costs and huge energy input from machinery and diesel and everything else. And it's kind of a short term fix as well, because it can, it, you know, if management remains the same, they'll just revert back to that uh, rushy pasture in, in whatever amount of time and you have to do it all over again. And whereas if you allow nature to do all that heavy lifting, and you plant trees in there and let them sort it out, then you have this, uh, you, have, you have huge longevity in that repair job and um, lasts for so so much longer. And you, uh, you, you just kind of let, let natural processes do the work rather than kind of technology. And um, so, yeah, uh, they're all economic benefits in my view anyway. Imogen, do you find from the farmers who keep coming back to you every year for more trees that they're changing their relationship to the land um, through the trees or, or do you get feedback from people in that respect or, or do you think there's a better connection happening there? Yeah, yeah I think there's absolutely a changing, a developing relationship. I think it's, it, you know, we've had, I think going back to what I was saying about the kind of often these multi-generational teams where there's a bit of skepticism and then, you know, mad keen youngsters wanting to plant trees, there's often the uncle or the, or the grandfather will end up ringing me and saying, here, can I have a few more trees this year? You know, that, that, that relationship sort of, I guess we call that the social aspect, don't we, that, that sort of starting to develop, seeing 
the difference of putting in a, a good hedgerow in terms of, as, as Clive says, you know, you, the first thing, once you've got a decent hedge on, on a wet, windy day, find all your cattle shuffled up underneath it, making use of it. That's really the proof of the pudding is, is seeing that, you know, and realizing those animals are not wet and shivering off, you know, kilos of feed. Mm. They're, um, they're conserving feed and that's, that's all, all, all to the good. So there's certainly that kind of changing and then and then there's the like there's i'm just thinking of a farm that actually i think it's one that it's the one that you that you had you visited before when when we when we spoke before in in wicklow, in, in wicklow. yeah that, yeah that was just, when i first saw that ground it was it's a steeply sloping x tillage field that has been had been you know let's say heavily used for generations and generations and generations and i i put a spade in the ground in a few places and there were layers of of compacted pan and, and you know drainage issues it's it's fabulous low ground fundamentally so we knew the soil was was good but let's say degraded on the left and it was an almost barren patch of ground bar the beautiful mature hedgerows that were all around it that was you know the bonus of these super mature hedgerows that we were able to obviously retain but in the time from planting the first they've they've put in i don't know how many kilometers of hedgerows um, I think we're up to about 15,000 trees have gone in on that site. There's not a single piece of woodland on there. It's it's all gone into hedgerows and shelter belts and corner pockets of, of trees in various fields. And then a lot of landscape with the landscape banks, and parts of the kind of groundworks have also been planted. And having been there around the place a lot, I suppose that must be, let's say it's five years. I don't think it's even that, but let's say it's five years ago. And I was back there in June, which of course is a wonderful time to visit any site because everything is really, really coming to life. But my goodness, I was blown away. There's a new barn there and a new house. There were hundreds of swallows nesting in that new barn. There were hundreds of house martins nesting in all the windows of the the new house. They've got to have something to eat. They must be finding enough bugs and critters from around the place to to, to exist having the confidence for those birds to move in when we all tend to be quite defeatist of oh well if you pull down that old barn those swallows will have nowhere to go you know this idea that they've moved into new places and the whole place was alive with toads and frogs and mice foxes and rabbits all to the you know some of them good some of them bad deer coming in under a bosch deer fence you know various kind of problem problem benefits if you like Mm. but seeing that base come alive they're then managing the pastures is grazed but they've got some areas that are cut for hay they taking particular attention to do late cut hay on some patches and and some other bits being left fallow entirely and seeing the different levels of the, the, the grass coming up to flower and just the activity, the insect activity, everything about it. And and the family who I, I think they would they would be very honest themselves to say that they know much about trees before they started it. Was, they are so inspired by what now these hedgerows are rocketing up, getting up to head height, you know, the greenery, the general kind of coming alive of, of a bit of ground from people who really were almost reluctant to put in a single tree at the beginning because they were worried to give up any land. You know, it was all precious grazing land. They needed every blade of grass. The idea of 10,000 plus trees was just absolutely terrifying. Mm. And you know, I don't think they've lost a single useful acre off the place, but they've gained fabulous, fabulous, you know, infrastructure. And yeah. um, from a, from an ecological biodiversity point of view, you know, it's just extraordinary what's happened there, that, that transformation. And we see that, but it's not the only place you know, I could I could give you forty examples of of places like that that so I think fantastic, and, and that actually has yielded us five or six more projects in that valley because they are all leaning over. You know, classic leaning out, talking over the gate to the next door farmer, yep. and then the next one, and off it goes. So that we're quietly working our way up that valley with different projects. A ribbon, a ribbon of life running through it. I mean, the foresight that you had to know, you know, we are in such urgent need of habitat um, creation for the kind of life that you've just described so beautifully in, in you know, in the middle of a field in, in, in Wicklow, which six years ago wouldn't have had any of that life in it. I just, uh, yeah, I just take my hat off to you for figuring out that this was your path and then doing this in such a brilliant collaborative way, you know, where anybody is welcome to try this. And then if they like it, they get more trees and they, you know, they can, 
slowly build and in their own comfort zone, they can build a natural habitat while still farming and while still getting an income and probably an improving income from their land um, by doing it. Do you think that, you know, now that the world, I suppose, is more interested in the idea of combining trees and farms, that this model is one that can go bigger again? I mean, what are, what are your plans for the future? Well, I, you know, the fabulous thing about Ireland, I suppose, for a project like this is that there is a limit, you know, it's, it's, it's not hugely populated. So we're actually able, there is a sense of almost a non-capitalist model. That there is no sense in, in aiming to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow because actually there's a limited population to, to reach. But the, yeah, the idea to slowly over time reach every farm or every every village or, or every parish is is you know is is wonderful and and actually in Ireland that's doable it's one of the few places where there is actually the scope to to reach it you know we have a joke not this map doesn't really show the roads but there is a sort of joke on the team that I've probably driven every road in Ireland over the years you know that that is actually possible to do so there is this wonderful idea of allowing the project I suppose to grow and grow to the point that it doesn't need to grow anymore that it can just kind of trundle along at its own pace and in its own way. I mean, we are, we are we're limited by, you know, the, the elephant in the room is finding the trees to, to keep these projects going. And I mean, that's potentially another subject, but actually Clive and I touched on it when we were talking this morning. For agroforestry, while there's a lot of situations where in an ideal world, we'd be fencing off areas, there'd be local seed, we'd be letting trees come as they want to and, and, and regenerating is obviously a super way of not planting trees. And it would be great to see more of that in, in a serious way, a, a, an acknowledged way of doing forestry, obviously very slow burner, but um, sourcing enough trees of quality to continue the, the work and it, it's not just about finding the hundreds of thousands and millions of virtual oak or, or, or whatever we, we need I think it's it's about having multi types of tree, you know trees that are bought on for we were you know something that bugs me a lot and, and that I spend a lot of time thinking about is how where, where we're doing open grown trees so we talk about the one tree in the field or a lot of the agroforestry models now where we're looking at growing single trees in you know, whether they're at 10, 20 or 80 meter spacings where you've got individual trees fending for themselves. To get that right, we spent generations in Ireland learning about forestry and how to grow a, a group of trees together, how to grow a forest, how to, how to get that good form by safety in numbers, all the trees washing up the light together, helping keep each other straight. And I think there's a lot to look at in terms of having different stages and as we know big believer in the, the small forestry whips being sure that we've got straight leaders and things so that where we have young open grown timber trees that we really want to get we need to climb and the silky saw we need the you know the farmer who's bothering to look at the tree and say oh hang on I'll just nip that branch off now while it's a tiny feather of a branch can do untold brilliant help for that tree for a hundred years time mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot to think about in terms of that diversity of kinds of trees coming to the market. So I don't think I'm ever going to be advocating for three meter tall, 10 centimeter girth stuff going in, which would be on, on a few bucket lists. You know, people would like to see those kind of trees going in, but I just don't think that's the way. But I think, you know, having this sort of quality of form coming in smaller numbers, you know, we don't necessarily need a million of them every year, but we could jolly well do with. 10,000 really good, strong, you know, oak trees or walnut or what have you with, with really good straight leaders. We've got to think about climate change and, and what will grow really well in Ireland as things change. And, and, and I'm a native tree person through and through, but equally we've, you know, we've got to look across at, at things like walnut and, and chestnut and other species that could help us out, mm. you know, where we're limited on species. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff to think about, I think, in terms of how to get it right on, on these models mm. how to let it develop if, mm. if that makes does sense it, does it feel good that the world is listening a little bit more now when you when you talk about trees you know that there's more of an interest now in this is that yeah i think i think absolutely of course it's great it's you know it's been a long time coming and there you know there were early days where i'd be sort of knocking on the doors of big businesses and saying got this fabulous idea you know perhaps give us a fiver to to start start work you know and in my mind it's absolutely clear that, that it was a great reason to 
you know, all this money that was being given to, to various charities. And she said, well, come on, this one's even more important. We don't have trees. We don't have, we don't have any, we don't have air to breathe. We're, we're in a right mess. What, what, what's the point in, in doing all these other things if we don't have an environment to live in? But of course, 10, 15 years ago, that was just sort of complete nonsense. So yes, it is indicating now having the same businesses banging on the door saying, you know, please, can you possibly plant some trees for us? We do now, it's interesting times because of course we have to be endlessly, I, I don't think diligence is quite the word, but we have to educate the businesses as they come to the door a lot because there is a tendency towards big dramatic stuff and greenwashing. We have we do a lot of bringing each the teams involved. Uh, we kind of give them a lot of lectures early on, you know, explaining what we're doing, why, what we're not doing, and really, and actually, that it's it's really great doing that because you find that a team that just wants to tick a box and plant X number of trees suddenly becomes really involved, really engaged, get them out tree planting, and they learn so so much. And then you've eradicated any worries about greenwashing because they're absolutely on the team and they've got their thing that, you know, they've got dirt under their fingernails and they're away. And um, so that's really, really important where the money comes from to drive these projects, that that money is coming uh, straight from the right mindset. You know, it's got, it's got to come for the right reasons. And carbon is another big, you know, that's a big one driving businesses and we don't offer any kind of carbon offsetting service because it just doesn't exist there, there there is no system in ireland really to accommodate that mm. um and i personally believe that that carbon really should belong to the trees that go in the ground and potentially probably should belong to the landowner long term but sure that's another hot political issue at the moment but there you know there are a lot of those issues to kind of duck and dive around with businesses you know we, we welcome sorts of businesses through the door helping us and we're really glad that I, I'm delighted that that the tables turned a bit because sure it would have otherwise we would have been a failed project 10 years ago you know we really would have gone nowhere because that's where all the money's had to come from so mm -hmm. it's, it's good well done it's been a great project Clive if you had to say one thing to a farmer who is thinking about doing something of what you've been doing on your farm is there one or, or more things that you think would win them over it's it's a tricky one to uh you know everybody has their own context and you're trying to come change people's um cultural perspective on trees is, is can't isn't always easy but i think i think on every farm there is space for trees and i think imogen would would agree and uh you know there's there's always there's always even for people who are quite sensitive about putting many trees on the farm there's always a little pocket or there is a, a hedgerow that can be reinforced with trees and um uh to, just thinking about it and and observing trees that are already in the land and the the function they play can be a really um nice way to, to change your uh thinking about it and um yeah, just look for those little easy wins in the landscape, and uh, there's there's so many win-win wins as as I said, and you just can't you can't really go wrong uh, as long as you mind them a little bit as well. <laughs> that's that's a very good note on which to end. Plant your trees and then mind your trees, um, everybody. And these are two really interesting experts. What I love about both your approaches is that sense of collaboration. I suppose with with you, Clive, it's a sense of collaborating with a system and, you know, figuring out slowly and carefully what's going to work for your farm and your land. And I think that's something that a lot of farmers will be able to relate to, because I think one of the barriers to forestry is that you have to hand your farm over to a forester to decide what happens there to some degrees, because that's how the system works. Um, so this approach where um, the landowner is deciding and, and doing the work themselves uh, is another way of doing things. And I think, uh, Imogen, we might finish up. You you um, gave me a great finishing quote when I was interviewing you years ago for the Irish Times about, you know, the relevance of your philosophy degree to what you're doing now. And that one of the teachings of philosophy is that there are many ways to do things. Is that still how you feel about trees on the land? Oh, my goodness. Ab absolutely. And funnily enough, that kind of couldn't, couldn't fit better, could it, Clive? We were talking about diversity earlier and um, that there's, you know, from... My my view of philosophy was very much that there's you know a, a thousand sides to every every story or a thousand ways to see the world, but actually diversity 
with trees, with agroforestry is, is this idea that every, every farm is different, every patch of land is different, that there's hundreds of ways to plant trees onto any piece of land, a diversity of ways of planting, diversity of species, and that we're always safe if we keep that diversity. So diversity of planting styles, diversity of management styles, diversity of, you know, end goals for the trees, whether you want to grow apples and have your wood pasture and your shelter and shade and some timber. You know, this idea of diversity in all things being really the, the way forward. There are a thousand ways to look at every every single bit of land and ways to do it. And there often isn't a right way or a wrong way, you know, that, that you could have done it free. We, you know, we've been planting trees on our place. You know, we could have done it differently. Maybe we should have, but sure, it'll all evolve. And there are many roads to Rome, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> safety and diversity it's resilience and diversity indeed great thank you so much i've really enjoyed talking to you both um that was a really fascinating conversation great to hear imogen and clive there you can take to clive's agroforestry beef by ordering one of his beef boxes at rareruminair.com imogen's project is at treesontheland.com do check it out if you'd like to get planting this year thanks for listening Find out more about the Irish Agroforestry Forum as well as their latest news and events on irishagroforestry, all one word, dot IE. Listen to all of our episodes on your favourite audio platforms, including Spotify and iTunes. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to and share our podcast to spread the word far and wide. This podcast has been produced by the Irish Agroforestry Forum in association with Growing. It is funded by the Woodland Support Scheme provided by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. I'm your host, Catherine Cleary, and you can find out more about my work with Pocket Forest at pocketforest.ie. This podcast was produced and edited by Karishma Kasurapur from The Curated Pod. This project was supported and led by Maureen Kilgore, Project Coordinator for Agroforestry Education and Promotion the Irish Agroforestry Forum. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Conversation Beneath the Trees as much as we've loved chatting with our guests. Thanks for listening.